0: Salve bona, and thanks for listening. Welcome to the Wines of South Africa podcast. I'm U.S. Marketing Manager Jim Clark, and in each episode we explore some aspect of South African wine. We talk with winemakers, winery owners, and other members of South Africa's vibrant wine industry, and we also give a sommelier a chance to share their impression of the wines. This episode we're going to a small region, but one which put South Africa on the map at a time when the United States hadn't even been born. The wines received notice from the very beginning, In 1692, the Dutch East India Company in Batavia responded to some samples they had received, writing, The wine from Constantia is of a much higher quality than any sent out so far. As early as the 1740s, Constantia's wines had become so famous that counterfeiting became a problem. George Washington actually received a case of Constantia wine as a gift while he was stuck in Valley Forge. Baudelaire, Jane Austen, and Charles Dickens all wrote about it. And when Louis Sixteenth was marched off to the guillotine, he actually left behind more Constantia wine in his cellars at Versailles than either Burgundy or Bordeaux. Later, Napoleon and his retinue, in exile on Santa Elena, consumed the majority of each vintage from 1815 until his death in 1821. It's reported that on his deathbed, Bonaparte would taste nothing else. Over the years, the original estate has been split into several different properties, and the area has even expanded a bit beyond that. There's a lot of history here. I'll leave it to Klein and Groß Constantia, which were both part of that original farm, to fill you in on Constantia's glorious past.
1: Hello everyone, Hans Astrum. I've been with Klein Constantia since late 2011. I'm a sort of vice chairman of the company, looking after everything that has to do obviously with uh, today's world of selling the iconic Van de Constance, but we're also famous for making a fair amount of dry white wines in particular, Sauvignon Blanc, a little bit of red. We're located just 15, 20 minutes outside of Cape Town on the Cape of Good Hope Peninsula. And we are actually, as it is, the oldest vineyard area in the whole of the Southern Hemisphere. The inception of the Constantia Valley was in the 1685. So... A lot of history and a lot of values that have been developing in our beautiful area. I would say the area of Constantia is really a farming paradise in the world for a few reasons. The closeness to the ocean. So when we say we are in South Africa, people usually think about very hot, dry climate, lions and elephants and safaris and all that. But actually where we are, it actually rains as much as London, and we only are about eight to 10 kilometers from the oceans. For being Africa, it has an incredible fertile and a very natural environment to farm, whether that was grapes or something else.
2: Hi, my name is Burakheva. I'm the winemaker at Perkins Center. Just a little bit about the history of Constantia. So the original farm, only called Constantia at the time, was granted to Simon van der Stel, the first governor of the Cape, in 1685. The original Constantia farm was massive. It was uh, 760 hectares. It's a massive piece of land. Van der Stel actually had a very good um, agricultural background. His family had a wine farm in the Netherlands. That's something we associate with the Netherlands today. But Van der Stel actually had some farming knowledge and experience, specifically wine farming. And his motivation for establishing the Cusantra farm was to use that as an experimental farm. So it wasn't only vines at the time. There was deciduous fruit, a lot of trees, livestock. The community in the Cape at the time was very small, not a lot of farmers. So Fonestel wanted to establish good farming practices and try to teach the small community to make it more sustainable here. So that was the official reason why Fonestel gave this piece of land, all 762 hectares of it. So, Van farmed it while he was still governing the Cape. And when Van passed away, the farm was sort of in limbo for a couple of years before the Swedish captain in the service of the DLC, Olof Berg, bought the farm. He bought only the Korsansha farm known as Korsansha today. The original farm was subdivided in three parts at the time. So, Olof Berg bought the Korsansha section and he farmed for a few years before he passed away and his wife, obviously, inherited the farm. So the third owner of Kukestansha was Olofberg's wife, and she was the daughter of a free slave. So Anade Quinning was the first black owner of Kukestansha in the early 1700s. So she passed away. Then the farm changed hands a few times, until the Clutis bought the farm around right about the 1780s. And I think when the Clutis bought it, they were more focused. And there's a lot written about what the Clutis did. They got more hands-on involved. I think at the time, the guys... They pretty much left the winemaking to the people sort of working in the land. The Quitters had some really good ideas and they got hands-on involved. And that is when the Kuttersan really got famous. All the famous wines that we read about, the wines that Jane Austen wrote about, the wines that Napoleon drank, those were all made in the Kuttersan era.
1: So, I mean, Van der Constance became extremely fashionable and popular in Europe in the 18th and 19th century. The owners of the wine estates in Constantia were very clever. They made a tax agreement with the crown saying that we pay some of our taxes in wine. And by doing that, they automatically had an amazing distribution model immediately. So the Navy loaded the barrels or the bottles and shipped them up to Europe. And of course, they took care of them, some of them for themselves, but it all obviously landed in through the system. And that was a natural distribution. So we're coming into the 1800s, and this is really the heydays of the, the famous Sweet Wives of Constantia. England defeats Napoleon in the early 1800s, but it takes about 20 years before they agree on all the trade agreements. And once England signs this final trade agreement with France, the exports of South African wines literally drops dead from one day to another. In England, automatically due to the trade agreement, starts trading with Bordeaux. So we had a tremendous success. And then literally one day or another, we are not on the map anymore. But there are other factors that cease the production of Van der Constance. First, you have the Sulu War, which is in the 1860s, and then the Boer Wars, and then, of course, the First World War and Second World War. Those were strong factors. There are also other factors that we read often about. The late 1800s, the first worldwide disease spread in vineyards started to go around, and then it was obviously odium, etc., uh, etc., cetera, et cetera, and eventually phylloxera. So we usually say at Klein, very few people realize that Yes, we have more than 330 years of history, but we actually lost 100 years.
0: constantia too, went into a decline at the end of the 19th century.
2: There were numerous reasons why things did not end well for the clippus. Volokstra was one reason. Around the end of the 19th century, around the 1880s, when Kroetkonstantje went bankrupt. And it's quite interesting. South Africa was still a British colony at the time. And the colony thought there was a lot of historical value in Kroker that was actually bought by the then Cape colony in the 1800s already, uh, because of its historical value. And it was in government ownership for around uh, right about 100 years. That was not the height of Kroker winemaking. Again, it was more sort of experimental winemaking for the largest part of the 1900s until towards the end, around about the, I think, 1960s, there was more focus on winemaking again. And then he was taken out of government ownership in 1993, when it was placed into an independent trust. So has been independent from the government since 1993, a non-profit trust that, uh, that operates independently. That's where we are today.
0: When Simon von der Stel chose the land that became the original Constantia Farm, he did his research. Not only did he visit to look at the land, its proximity to the bay, and so forth, he also took multiple soil samples before making his final choice. He chose well when it comes to wine growing.
2: From south to north, Constantia is only about 8 kilometers. Constantia is a, it's a very small area. I think there are about 10 or 11 wine producers in the Appellation. But there's only something like 384 hectares under vines in Constantia. So it's quite a small Appellation. Sort starts with Steinbeck in the south. seems is very unique in the sense that it's very close to the old ocean. Also a very old estate. It goes back to the first owner, oh, who said... was granted in uh, 1682, so there's a lot of history in in that part of town as well. They are sitting very close to the ocean, but the soils are very poor, very poor, very sandy soils. The greater Cape Town area, so that includes Sunshine, Dermagol to some extent, Fallabash Pole, those soils, or the mountain ranges are granite base and sandstone capstone. So all the soils in the Cape is actually very easy, That, that part of Cape Town, the soils are very easy to explain, it's either decomposed granite, or it's decomposed sandstone, or combinations thereof. Okay, so where Steenburg is situated, their soils are dominated by decomposed sandstones. It's actually very poor sandy soils. So in my mind, the character of the steenberg winsey is dominated by the climate. The wind blows, the wind pumps the steenberg and it comes right off probably Obviously, that's still the Atlantic Ocean, very cold, especially during the summertime. steenberg for me, steenberg is blunt blank. It makes some very interesting, they there's some issues and cabs, cabs struggle because cab doesn't like wind there. Eh? But uh, the semion, also, really nice but with me. Steinberg is a Sauvignon Blanc, and that is really weather-situated. Very sandy soil and very cold, strong winds. And then there's a bit of a gap from Steenberg to the next farm, which is Constantia Eitzer. And then Eitzer, plain Constantia, krupp Constantia, Bettenbach, all sort of locked these pieces of a puzzle. And we, those three farms, if you look at it, we basically on the southern slopes of Table Mountain, sort of more the extension of Table Mountain, I'm looking at Flattenburg now. So most of those vignettes face start, um, especially if you look at Klink-Constantia and Beitenwachting. They have more altitude, so again, this part of town, more of the granite soils. So Steenberg, and then there's the sort of old Constantia, that's part of the original Constantia farm. And that, for me, the uh, certain part of Eidserch. Boatengachting and Klaincustanscha, they have altitude, they have south-facing slopes, that is why Boatengachting and Klaincustanscha is dominated by somnia. They have, they have more whites than they have reds. Okay, they have the altitude, they have more south-facing. Kohlkustanscha is slightly going around the bend, so we have a few north-facing slopes and we have lower vineyards as well. So we go down to 40 metres above sea level. So that is why Kohlkustanscha, we do about 70% red. Whereas our neighbours, uh, especially Plain and Bacon, they're dominated by whites. So, this is the middle part of Constantia, obviously. You know, that's the that has these two areas this lower lying, slightly north facing, warmer part, and the higher lying, um, south facing areas from Flannenbait and then and a bit of itself as well. With that, uh, that's again, you know, make some stunning sovereigns. And then it's interesting, just over the neck is where you'll find Eagle Snares, uh, Constantia, and Bow Constantia. And even though, as the crow flies, there are a couple of hundred meters from our top vignette. Again, it's very different. We go up to 240 meters altitude. Uh, Eagles, say start at 240 meters, and they go to over 400. They are just, again, around a bend, and they have a lot more north-facing in that side. So on the one hand, they have north-facing slope, which is warm, a very valuable commodity in the Constantia Valley. But B, they have altitude, which makes them cooler. So the altitude makes it cooler, but the north-facing give them a bit of, uh, sort of direct sunlight. Also, they're sitting in, in the next so they have a bit later sunlight hours than we have here in Kruitt as well. So if you go over the bend to Eagle's Nest and Glen, Boe Constantia is tiny, but obviously Boe as well. They have more red. That's also, there's a lot more red in there than you'll find white in that part. So even though Constantia is a tiny wine grain area, like I said, 383 hectares for the 10 or 11 producers, there's actually sort of three distinct different regions. Oh, there's a fourth one. Sorry, I forgot. There's a fourth one called Constantia Royale newcomers, new kids in the block, and that is the border of Constantia towards Weinberg, Bishop's Court, that area, and maybe 100% Sauvignon. Dollop of Simeon, but basically Sauvignon dominated as with Constantia Real. Again, very sort of different terroir as well. So it's amazing how you get all these very different pockets of terroir in a very small, wine grain
0: region. The Constantia Neck is a pass that separates the Constantia Berg Mountain from Table Mountain. It's home to several new wineries and vineyards, mostly planted in the past 20 years.
3: I'm Duran Corneal, winemaker of Eagle's Nest. I was born in the Eastern Cape in South Africa. I then moved to the Cape and studied viticulture and enology at the University of Stellenbosch, after which I worked at Clan Constantia as assistant winemaker. I did a couple of vintages around the world, New Zealand, Bordeaux. I helped a friend out in Portugal for a bit. I was assistant winemaker at Clan Constantia up until 2017, and then I started as winemaker at Eagle's Nest. So Eagle's Nest is one of the younger properties in Constantia, if we can call it that. The property was bought by the Mulray family in 1984, just as a sort of leisure property, lifestyle property. The old man enjoyed his hiking and his trails and the fame boss and all the natural sort of vegetation. So this was his little piece of private land to do what he really could. And then in 2000, the, the Constantia fires ripped through the property, practically burning down everything in its way from top to bottom. Um, And it was after that, that there were sort of questions as what should would be done. There were big rains afterwards. There was erosion. There was all sorts of things happening to the small little property. When I say small, 35 hectares. So he chatted, they were going to do proteas for export purposes. They were going to farm goats. Random, but they were going to farm goats. And then just being in historic Constantia, where sort of wine industry started in South Africa, one of his good friends said, well, why don't you start a wine estate? So in 2002, they started planting their first vineyards. This took two years, so it covered the years of 2002, 2003. The property is now 12 hectares under vineyard, and every piece of land that could possibly have vineyard has vineyard. The rest is sort of unfarmable, if you can call it that, and inaccessible. The vineyards are now coming up to 17, 18 years old. It consists of about four hectares of shiraz, about four hectares of merlot, just over three hectares of Vionier and about 0.8 hectares of Cabernet Franc. The rest is all planted to natural Fainbos. Mr. Mulray, who's the grandfather of the now owners, well, the, the father of the now owners, should I rather say, he really had a passion for, for Fainbos and Proteas and the silver tree. At one stage, we had the largest silver tree plantation in the Cape, along our property, and then alien removal, I think it's our responsibility as an agricultural company to remove aliens and to protect the natural faneboss on our property. So we spend a lot of time on alien removal. And at the end of the day, if you have these natural fanebosses, they're your friend when it comes to 1,200 moles of rain in the year to prevent erosion and all sorts of things. So we really do spend a lot of time looking after the natural vegetation. And if you drive along I-State, you'll see there's massive big protea trees just planted all along all the roads. And that was his efforts to sort of revive these sort of things, the big king protea. Not revive, but keep it going. Look after it. So at one stage, whether it's rumor or the truth, I like to believe it's the truth. We were the steepest farm vineyards in South Africa. So as we go up the mountain here, yeah, everything is steeply terraced, extremely narrow row woods. So very difficult getting implements in and the bit of implements we can get in and makes turning very difficult. So a lot of it's done by hand with the guys with backpacks on spraying, obviously all pruning, all harvest, everything. Yeah, done by hand. So extremely labor intensive property. Also, we do as much as possible for erosion control, which takes up a lot of time. The terracing takes up a lot of time. But as much as it's our enemy in terms of labor intensive, it's our best friend in terms of growing vineyards and the product we receive, or the grapes we get into the cellar. I know we're on the warmer part of Constantia, where the guys around the corner being Hrott Constantia, Klein Constantia, Beitenverwachten, Eitzel, Steenberg, as you move down into towards False Bay there, uh, are a lot more east-facing, so much cooler slopes. I don't want to say we're not affected by the prevailing east wind because it hammers us up in the mountain, but much cooler slopes. We're more north northwest facing slopes. So we get the late afternoon sun right up until sunset, if I can call it that, when it goes behind the mountain. Just much warmer slopes, much more suitable for red wine varieties. I was reading earlier that the average ripening temperature in Constantia is 20.6 degrees, which is relatively cool. If we get a 28 degree day in Constantia, it's a hot day for us. So we don't get the big 40s and the high 30s and those sort of things. And then our nighttime print temperatures, especially up in the mountain, you yeah, at Eagle's Nest up to where our vineyards go to about 420 meters above sea level. It's cool on the mountain. And that prevailing east wind coming off false bay cools everything down. And altitude. So yeah, they say for every 100 meters, you lose a degree. So I know I've got sort of temperatures down at the wine tasting, which call it at sea level. If it's 25 degrees down there, you're looking at about 19 degrees up in the vineyards. So even if it is a scorcher of a day, it's still, I would say, 23 degrees up in the vineyards, up in those top blocks of Shiraz. So we've got extremely long ripening periods, um, which we all know is excellent for growth of grapes, wine grapes specifically.
0: As we've seen, despite being such a small area, growing conditions in Constantia can vary from one end to the other. So while Constantia as a whole is heavily associated with high-quality sauvignon Blanc, a number of other varieties also grow quite well,
1: I can't say that everything grows well in Constantia, but obviously, depending on your location, nervy white wines. Personally, I believe that the valley, if you're on the right spot, it's very suitable for Chardonnay. I do believe that it has an incredibly strong potential for some reds, but the reds will not be typical South African reds. They will be much more linear, much more nervy, much more driven by acidity, I mean nothing to compare with if you take Stellenbosch or if you take, let's not even talk French but if you take Swatland, they will be, I don't want to say much more of a European style, but much more of a linear, lighter style, even though the wine has quite a lot of maturity. The wine will be as ripe in sugar as they are in Stellenbosch, but the organoleptics, when you're tasting the wines, brings your mind and your experience to a completely different spectrum. Klein Constantia planted Sauvignon Blanc in the early 80s, and it was sort of one of the first high-quality wine estates with Sauvignon Blanc in the country, and obviously a pioneer. And, And today, not everyone knows that the number one sold white wine in South Africa locally is actually Sauvignon Blanc. So it became sort of the drink of everyone. But this is obviously way ahead of the big way from New Zealand. So, Clan Constancia championed Somméon Blanc, and very early they got a, an incredible reputation for making it. And, and then other regions started to follow suit. However, I, I would say that up to 2012, it was really a little bit of convenience and a little bit of comfort. I wouldn't call them complacent, but... We had 30 hectares of Sauvignon Blanc and they made two qualities. One was the first quality and one was the second wine. And they were very happy about that and they sold everything that they were making. But when Matt and myself arrived for the 2012 vintage, we started a program of of trying to figure out each vineyard, each single vineyard, What sort of specific characters have that got? And of course, if you are facing east and you are on 250 meters, you are sort of in the wind differently, you're in the sun differently. The altitude obviously gives a difference in terms of precipitation, in terms of temperatures, in terms of wind. And then if you compare that to a vineyard facing straight south, it's a huge difference. So we started to separate everything. In a different way, and really trying to understand the single vineyard concept. And that's taken us now, if you're looking at eight years later, we obviously learned a hell of a lot. And we are still making sort of two predominant qualities of Sauvignon Blanc, which is the first quality and the second. But on top of that, we have defined six to eight specific sites that are usually located at the very height. Of the mountain so you're talking 300 meters which would be 900 feet in america and we are really in the eye of the wind facing south southeast out towards the ocean and the berries up here they they would be really battered by the wind so the bunches will be tight the berries will be very small the skins will be very thick There's a lot of flavor, a lot of stuff in these grapes, and of course, the acidity is really, really quite high. So, by keeping these blocks separate, and since 12, having made wine from all these little small blocks, we have eventually defined that we have eight superb blocks. That we don't produce eight single vineyard Sauvignon Blancs, but from year to year, we have, say, three, four, five. Of them and The goal with it is obviously to be able to to show to sommeliers, to journalists, to tasters that Wow, at Klein Yes, we're not burgundy, but within 100 meters or within 50 meters There is a huge difference between two vineyard blocks. The owner is the same the farming is the same the clone is the same the grape is the same but There is terroir. There is a definite terroir. The soils that we have are pretty even. It's all granite. When you work the vineyards this way and you're looking at the individual characteristics, obviously one of the goals we have is that how can we make the consumer or the taster to get that feeling of the granite soils and the cool, wet, windy climate that we have. And that's what we're trying to get. So the way of farming is completely natural, or I don't want to use biodynamic, but it, but it, it certainly isn't with any any pesticides and fungicides. The way we're making the wine is completely natural, the absolutely hundred percent natural. The only additive to the wine would be a little bit of SO2 before we are bottling it. We are trying to capture some unique characters, and we sort of have this little dream amongst us, and that is. Everyone knows what Seleks is, or well, everyone in the wine trade knows what Seleks is, which some people don't even think about it, of it as a Sauvignon Blanc, and few people think about it as a Sancerre, but it's actually Puy Fumé, etc., etc. And if we have one block at Klein that has the potential of being the Seleks of the Southern Hemisphere, if we can work on that and build on that and eventually have so much experience about what we're doing, that we're doing everything right. I think we really have, potentially, one of the great Sauvignon Blancs out of the Southern Hemisphere.
2: So, like I said, a very, very small part of our business is white wine, but we have a very few sites that's still in the mountain, at altitude, sort of bang on south facing. So obviously Sauvignon is half the vineyards in Constantia's planted to Sauvignon. It's a very important part of our business. Um, and for Kusancho as a whole, and obviously for Hurt as well, we still make a, a decent amount of Sauvignon. I think in South Africa there's uh, warmer time, you know, it's more the, the sort of uh, riper, more sort of stone fruit profile that the guys get. And then there's a small band of guys around the coast, you know, you find it up in the west coast, and then all around you'll find, it, even up to all, the, all the way to Elam, you know, it, it becomes really sort of green, grassy, but that's sort of lean towards New Zealand south, a bit of age, it's sort of asparagus. And uh, for me, Devonville, you get that sort of pea, sort of also green pea character. Constantia doesn't get that. We often see there's always an underlying grassy sort of herbal character, but it's not that green, thin, asparagusy green, you know, it's like a slightly sort of herbal character. But we actually get good ripeness here. There's a lot of similarities between the Constantia Sauvignon and the Elgin Sauvignon. I think there's a bit more intensity, a bit more sort of complexity and ripeness. I I find more ripeness on the Constantia Sauvignon. Often more ripe than green. It's interesting that herbal tones do show with a bit of age. The wines, you know, after three, four, five years, there's, that herbal tone is there. But it's more lychee, more of that character, rather than stone fruit that you'll find. But a lot of those interesting lychee, even slightly some, sometimes sort of terpene characters, you find the sort of full ripeness in Constantia. No
3: Sauvignon Blanc. we the only farm in Constantia to not have a wine of origin, Constantia, Sauvignon Blanc. I think it was quite nice in a way. Uh, Although my love for Sauvignon Blanc started at Klein Constantia and it still hasn't left me, I, I think it's still one of the most incredible varieties to make. Everyone thinks it's just a sort of run-of-the-mill variety and every Sauvignon Blanc tastes the same. But go to Clannes Constantia and taste their 12 or 14 different Sauvignon Blancs and you realize how, how versatile Sauvignon Blanc can be. But although if, if the world thinks of, of Sauvignon Blanc in South Africa, they must think of Constantia. That's what we're pushing for. I think it's quite nice to see Constantia's diversity and that we can produce Year after year, one of South Africa's best surers, Bioniers and Merlos. So yes, we're different from the rest of the valley in what we produce, but we're doing it well and therefore keep going. Let the other guys lead the 7 Blanc blank train. We don't have a Bordeaux blend. We focus on our best muller. I think the problem in South Africa is most properties, flagship ones, are Bordeaux blends and therefore their best muller goes into their flagship one. We don't have that border blends. so our focus is putting a straight merlot in the bottle and, and doing it the best we can I know our neighbors Kirk Constantia do a good merlot but once again their best merlot goes into their border blends Justin them next door they don't bottle a single varietal merlot but make some amazing merlot that also goes into border blend so yeah a, I think it's the most planted red wine variety in Constantia merlot I think every property has it except eights if I'm not mistaken Eitzch and Boconstantia, I think, are the only two that don't have it. So it is a a widely planted variety. But yes, I think being on the warmer slopes and that long ripening period, and we all know Merlot has an issue with pyrazines, which take a long time to get out of the grape. And if it ripens too fast, you never get rid of it. So we're very fortunate that because of warm slopes in the cool growing region, we have that long hang time to really get rid of those pyrazines before the sugars sort of go through the roof. I think another great region is Elgin. If you look at Shannon, year after year, the best merlot in South Africa. So I think South Africa is a warm, wine-making country. So these cooler regions really are standing out, in my opinion, especially with merlot. One of the owners mm-hmm. did a trip up into Kondru and everything, and he just fell in love with Viognier. So Viognier was planted because of his love for Viognier, and it was planted as a blending component. It was going to be a sort of that Cotretisse-style Shiraz, I don't know, whatever, 15% Vionier or whatever the blend would have been. But unfortunately, in, in Constantia, or at least at Eagle's Nest, the ripening periods are just far too different. So if we pick Shura, say, in the second week of April, and we're picking Viognier in the second week of March, there's no way of sort of co-fermenting or anything like that. So the other option is to blend Viognier back into the Shiraz blend, but I don't think that's the point. I think the whole point is to get that co-fermentation and get the wines bonding quite early together. But the ripening times are just way too different to ever do that. So now we produce a Viognier. Viognier is quite a chameleon grape. But it's really reflective of its growing conditions. The warmer sort of pull up into Malmesbury, Franchuk, you guys are really creating big, powerful chunky vioneers, if I can call it that, we're really focusing on reflecting that cool climate of eagle's nest. Once again, good natural acidity. We pick it in three different stages to maintain that freshness. We get an earlier pick for acidity. And then in healthy years, leave it on the vine, about 15% of the total batch on the vine. And that's where your real aromatics and texture and everything comes from. So those three blending components are quite vital in in getting a form of consistency and freshness and and style. Shiraz being our sort of self-proclaimed flagship wine, we very seldom get these super high sugars. So there's a lot of spice, a lot of elegance, a lot of natural acidity. I always compare it to these big Australian Shiraz's that are ripe and jammy and sort of overpowering, where I think Eagle's Nest, to sum it all up, I could say, is just elegance from the, the mouthfeel, the tannin, the aromatics. Everything is just more gentle and subtle. A lot of that sort of northern Rhone, spicy floral character from these long ripening periods. I think in most blonde tastings, if you're South African Shiraz, most people pick up Eagle's Nest. It is, it is truly unique.
2: And then our big red, from a body point of view, is Shiraz. Kassansha has a very long history with the variety. There are notes of just a Cassandra red, from the early 1700s, that some French and German viticulturists speculate that the Costantia wines that tasted was actually made from Shiraz. It's pure speculation, but that's from the 1720s. And then, after Vlokstrak killed our vineyards in the late 1800s, one of the first vineyards to be replanted was Shiraz. So, we have a very long history with the variety. And again, I think Shiraz, the second most popular red variety in South Africa, second to Cabernet Sauvignon, more associated with warmer regions. Obviously, some fantastic stuff coming from Stellenbosch. I think some guys in the Swatland uh, making some big waves. But I do think, again, in the South African context, slightly cooler take on the variety. I think our neighbors at Eagle's Nest also making some stellar uh, Shirazes there. I do think that uh, that slightly sort of cooler take on this variety has been extremely popular for us. Penetage, is obviously quite unique to South Africa. And you've tasted our Penetage, it's something that we really enjoy here. We're the only guys in Constantia Valley that put a, a big spotlight on Penetage. We do about 5,000 cases of Penetage every year. It's not a small part of our business. When it comes to cool wine-grained regions, I think between Hebel and Arda and ourselves, I think there's something Southern right, there's a fair amount of Penetage there, and we do Penetage here. So interesting similarities between those two wines. So Penetage is definitely something that's worth investigating here in Constantia. And then our flagship red is the Governor's Reserve. Like I said, we are very fortunate to have some of those free-draining gravels with those north-facing slopes that really produce beautiful intensity for the Cabernets and the Merlots and the Cabernet farms. Chardonnay, interesting. Chardonnay is a variety that's sort of declined in Constantia in the last 10, 15 years. But we've actually planted more Chardonnay here. For some reason, you know, where we are those decomposed granites. that you know, really work with the Chardonnay. So relative low yields we find here. But amazing intensity. So yeah, so fast, Chardonnay is actually growing. It's, it's becoming a more and more important variety for us. Yeah, so Chardonnay, in my 20 years yet, Chardonnay has probably been our best producer when it comes to consistency, getting awards, domestic and international. So Chardonnay is definitely one of our highlights.
0: These Sauvignon Blancs and Merlots and so forth are all dry wines, but Constantius producers haven't ignored the region's tradition of making world-class sweet wines. Klein Constantia was the first to revive the historical style with their Van de Constance. Other wineries like Betenverwachting and Groot Constantia have followed suit.
1: From the mid-1880s to 1986, there was wine made in the valley, but very little. Grot Constantia was making wine. There were a few small things, but it, it really wasn't anything much to talk about. And it certainly wasn't anything of the quality of the sweet wines that are made today in the valley, not at all. And at Klein, we openly say there was absolutely no sweet wine made at all. And there were a a few hectares of grapes growing, but it was really not much for any quality wines. So come in 1979, there is a famous South African family by the name Eustace. decide to buy the property, Klein-Constantia. Dougie Euston, sort of the old man of the Euston family, he was in the liquor business up in Johannesburg. They were doing very well. And he was talking to uh, a friend of his down at, at one of the larger companies today, Distel. And they said, this old farm in Constantia, we should sort of look at it and see what we can do for it. And in 79, just before Christmas, he signed the purchase agreement. and at that time, for the vast sum of 1 million rand. That is today obviously nothing, but he bought 147 hectares of land. But at that time, it had literally just a few hectares of grapes planted. The the farm was derelict. And they took on this amazing task of redeveloping. And they did that together with a professor from Stellenbosch University, Professor Urfer, who had studied a lot about the famous sweet wines of Constantia. And they managed to find some old vineyards of muscat that was believed to be the original clone that came to the country. So they did the development, and it was in the beginning fairly secretive, but you've got to sort of put your mind into mid-80s South Africa, it's in the middle of the worst period the country ever had in terms of apartheid and all the issues with that. So in 86, the first vintage of wine is made on the wine estate. But obviously it was impossible to export. They had to rely 100% on the local market really in the beginning. And the famous sweet wine, the Van der Constance, they made two barrels and not one bottle was sold. It was all... Given away, it was presented to people, and the first year was literally just a gimmick. But they felt that they were onto something, and thanks to the Uster family, and particularly also Professor Urfer, they stuck to their guns and they started to develop this. So, 86 is the birth or the rebirth of producing sweet wine in Constantia, and Klein was obviously then the first one. To resurrect this old style of wine. After that, obviously, other properties have followed suit. The soils, the climate, the terroir is all very suitable for sweet wine making of the style that we are doing it. And some of our neighbors obviously seen success that we had at Klein. And now we're seeing more and more of niche production of the famous sweet wine of Constantia. Van der konstanz is truly unique wine Uh, we literally have no one else in the world making a wine style like this there are other producers other regions which, which has similarities but in one way both good and bad most commonly we are compared to the sweet wines of Sauternes or Barsac which is actually quite wrong because we are very different and there are a couple of main reasons I would say number one it's not a botrytisized wine. It's, it's actually a late harvest wine. Yes, there are a lot of different late harvest wines around the world. But when you then come to the grape variety, the grape variety is Muscat de Frontignon, which, yes, exists in Australia, in Europe, in America and so on. But the terroir and the climate that we have in Constantia gives the wine that obviously has a fair amount of residual sugar, but it has also very, very high acidity, a natural acidity. So it doesn't really make a sweet wine. It is sweet. There's no question about it. But really, it's a fresh wine with sweetness instead of the other way around, a sweet wine that just has some freshness. So Novoetritis, muscat Frontignon, and the harvest season for this wine is a very slow picking season. It literally really... Elongated harvest would be, say, almost three months, but generally speaking, the harvest is about two months. So we're waiting for the berries to raisin on the wine. And then it becomes more and more raisins, and we go into the vineyard and pick berry by berry. So simply put, it takes about three months to harvest. And once the berries are in the cellar, we obviously hand sort them, we de-stem them there's a little bit of maceration on them and they are put to fermentation. And everything is done naturally. So there's no added yeast, obviously. There's no added enzymes. There's no added nutrients. There's no added tricks, so to say. So due to the sugar levels of the wine, the fermentation is really slow. Average one can say it's about 12 months, but it varies obviously from barrel to barrel. But simply put, three months of picking, 12 months of fermenting and once the wines are fermented we put parts of it in 500 liter french oak barrels and parts of it in traditional old foodres which are about 5000 liters everything is high tech in cellars today but the food is really old tech because that's literally how old wines in in the old days were made When you go to old cellars, you look at old pictures, you will see these big wooden casks from the past. So that's sort of an old tech that we decided to introduce from the 2015 vintage. So the wine matures in the barrels for about three years. And after that, it's it's obviously then cleaned up and we put the wine into bottles. Give and take from harvest until the wine comes to the market, there is a period of about four years. We don't want to change what we do. Our main mission is to recreate that amazingly famous sweet wine from the 1700s, 1800s, and to be as close to that wine as possible. Often people accuse us of saying, oh, you're you're changing the style of the wine. And and actually, we haven't at all. What the wines are today is they are probably a little bit more elegant. And they are, I would say that the difference in the aromatic is probably us more diligence because they are slightly less oxidative. The huge bottle variations that you sometimes see in all the vintages that was that one year it had 15.5% in alcohol and next year it had 125 And that obviously changes the wine completely. And And the same if you had 120 grams of sugar or 220 grams of sugar. So we are trying to, to work more on what we call the sweet spot, Matt and I, and that is the four pillars, the four legs, and that is to be very consistent with how much sugar it has, to be very careful with how much alcohol, because if it, if it has too high alcohol, the wine becomes too big. Uh, thirdly, is obviously the freshness, the acidity, and fourth is obviously flavor, texture, the meat on the bone of the wine, so to say. And once we get what we call the sweet spot. Once it's there, that's when the wines are good.
2: Obviously, sweet wine, the, the Grand Constance, that's the wine that makes Constantia famous, so it's something to be very proud of. So it's still a work in progress, we're still working with different research labs around the world, you know, to really get to the bottom. We discovered some documentation recently, again. I don't think there was one definitive style of sweet wine. I think this wine from the 1700s to the late 1800s, over that 150-year period, when these wines were famous, I think, different generations and different owners. I think this wine definitely changed in style. Claim and Baiton, and as far as I know, even Aitzer, so they're only using white muscat, but we incorporated yeah. some red as well. So we do 30 red and 70 white. There are a few guys in Australia that has red muscatel and then in South Africa, but red muscat is not something that Europe or Northern Americans actually know. It's, it's pretty much the South Africans that use it. So, But we found that if you compare the white and the red muscat, it's not only a color mutation, it's definitely a different aromatic profile to the red muscat that you don't find on the white muscat. So it's actually quite nice. And the new plantings of muscadel on the farm as well, we always do sort of 30% red and 70% white and we do field blends. We don't identify them separately. We pick it all and sort of do field blends from the beginning of the sweet wine. We had some Pontac on the farm before my time in the 1990s because we found some Pontacs from the 1850s. So obviously there was one of the varieties that the guys had here on the farm. But the previous vineyard managers would just say it was an absolute nightmare to farm the Pontac. So we have the Pontac. That's unfortunately not something that we uh, decided to pursue. So a lot of the older generation that firmly believe that old Constantia sweet ones were fortified. Interesting that we started to produce a brandy about 10 years ago. And in the research, we found that ever since another de Kooning sold the farm in the 1700s, they found brandy distillation equipment on the inventory, but never brandy, as such. So, so brandy distillations had a history with Kurt for nearly 200 years, nearly 300 years, as a matter of fact, but they never found brandy. So what did they do with the brandy? And so it, it may be possible that at some point they may have fortified some of those old, old Costancha suites. We don't know. But we, we're very happy with where we are with the, the gone Constants, um, but it's work in progress. So uh, like I said, and it's always interesting to sort of dig into the archives and see what everything came up with. And yeah, we may even, do something unusual you know and sort of play around and do a fortified version at some point
0: The dynamic forward-thinking approach that began a few decades ago and has since kept Constantia at the front of the wine scene has not slackened. While many of the properties may be centuries old, there are a lot of young faces on the winemaking teams, so the thinking and winemaking approaches remain fresh and innovative.:
2: I suppose when I got here I was a lot younger than I am now, but uh, but it is strange. I think there's a lot of guys. Like Justin from Glen, I think Justin's about 35 now. I think he and Matt was in the same class, both 35. Donna from Aidschuk, a lot younger. And obviously, sort of Megan on the top here. So there's a, there's a lot of young brat in the area as well. And I think it's important. I'm 47 and I'm the oldest winemaker. And there's me and Brad that's in our 40s. So uh, it's actually quite nice to have all that sort of young energy in the, in the valley. Just, yeah, having said that, I think both Justin and Matthew, even though they're only 35 years old, they've probably both been here for 10 years plus. They moved to Constantia as assistant winemakers at a very young age and cut their teeth and, uh, before they were promoted to responsible winemakers. But it's fantastic, even for me as sort of one of the older guys in the valley at the moment, it's fantastic because Sancho Valley has this great interaction, you know, right there. so these monthly tastings that we have at, uh, we get together on a monthly basis to do technical tastings. And I think it's really important to have that openness to sort of chat and see, you know, the, the youngsters that they travel often, they, they bring new, fresh ideas. I think it's great to have all that energy. There's no use trying to sell the concept of just being old, you know, just being old can also become stuffy. So I think it's great to, to have that sort of fresh blood in the area as well to help keep things sort of fresh and, and, and current. So yeah, so I think it's fantastic.
0: I wanted to get a US perspective on some of these wines and I turned to Matthew Kainer as someone who would appreciate the history of the area. Matthew is the co-founder of Bar Covel in Los Angeles, and he's also the host and producer for SOM TV. Matthew, how are you?
4: Hey, I'm doing all right, Jim. Good to talk to you, man.
0: You too. Now, when did you first encounter Constantia wines or hear about them?
4: So my kind of love for wines from Constantia started with the sweet version, which they're most known for. And the guy who got me into wine, who I guess I can credit with giving me a guilty pleasure of wine and inspiring me to, to take a deep dive into my life, he was someone obsessed with sweet wines. He was obsessed with Madeira. He was obsessed mm. with port. He was obsessed with a lot of aged sweet wines. He loved Sauternes. And the first time I ever heard of Constantia was being given or being you know, offered a taste of Vinda Constance by Klein Constantia. I forget what vintage it was. This would have been back in like 2002, 2003. And he Mm -hmm. has a pretty deep cellar, so it might have been something from the 80s or 90s at that time. It definitely wasn't a fresh vintage. It was something with some time. So I quickly established a love for South African wine by tasting the most famous
0: sweet wine from there. Oh, starting off on the right foot there. (laughs) I got lucky. (laughs) And were you able to explore the wines of Constantia a bit on your own, or did it take getting over there before you really started getting a sense for the range of the region?
4: Yeah, the the Constantia wines in general were a blind spot for me within my own study in South Africa. And it wasn't really until I went to South Africa for the first time with you in 2015 that I explored more wines from the, the region. And then I personally got to go there in 2019, early last year. And I got to visit one wine farm there, which really was a special thing. So getting to see the grounds, to realize the aspect of the Constantia to be there, to feel the closeness and the, the proximity to the ocean, to see False Bay myself, it was really a special thing. And when you think about what's this going on, 340 years of history, or however long it is, since the first governor of the Cape, Simon van der Stel, realized what a special place this was, but then... There was so many years that Constantia went kind of unnoticed. And then around the 1980s is when it really picked up steam and people started to reinvest in the vineyards there. And now, especially from like the early 2000s to current day, we're starting to see much more focus on cooler climate varieties. Sauvignon Blanc is taking off. Chardonnay does quite well there. And Bordeaux varieties actually do quite beautifully on the red side. So, of course, we had to taste a Sauvignon Blanc, a Chardonnay, and then a Bordeaux variety blend.
0: So you're referring to the three wines that we sent over in preparation for this interview. But before we get to absolutely. those, I'm curious, what property did you get to visit last year?
4: I got to go to Constantia Glen, which is one of the ones ah, we tasted. Oh, okay, great.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, and there you have a different... Beautiful looks, property. Beautiful property. Yeah. And what are the newer properties? Because it's around that Constantia Neck area, more north-facing vineyards, and a bit more of an emphasis on the Bordeaux varieties there than the more southerly part of Constantia. Exactly. With the wines we sent you, uh, I think Sauvignon Blanc is the obvious place to start since it's such a key variety for the region. What did you think of the Steenberg?
4: So the Steenberg Sauvignon Blanc is a really classic style for a cool climate area. It shows really beautiful kind of closeness to a body of water being not far from the ocean, I think only a few miles, really. Mm. It's a blend of two different vineyards. There are their top vineyards on the Steenberg, the mountainside itself. So this is kind of that gun-flinty, mineral edged, when Sauvignon Blanc is grown in granitic soils, it really does get that kind of mineral edge. The the vines really do find their way to, to find a mineral uh, kind of explosion. And I loved it because I've had a lot of Sauvignon Blanc from South Africa that just tastes like what you expect Sauvignon Blanc to be. Fruit forward, easy drinking. This wine though has great acidity. I think it was six grams per liter total acid. So it's really present mm-hmm. for the alcohol level pushing about 14% alcohol and there's a kiss of residual sugar about two, two and a half grams, but you don't feel it because of the acidic edge the wine has. So it really brings out these amazing citrus notes, the gun Flint kind of a melon quality. And then definitely like a herb de Provence Garrigue. I know in in, uh, South Africa, Fingbos is the Mm -hmm. the local amazing kind of what we would call garrigue anywhere else in the world. That's the specific variety that they have of naturally growing, foliage around. And it's, it's just such an amazing intoxicating smell when you're there, especially when it's windy. It's just, it's so beautiful. So, yeah, the Steenberg Sauvignon Blanc definitely shows the potential, I think, for the variety in this area. I know that there's obviously a lot of people who love Loire style Sauvignon Blanc. It's hard to find a wine that emulates what you get out of the Loire Valley in France for Sauvignon Blanc. So this beautiful mineral edged, clean, not overly fruity, just a really elegant style, especially for the alcohol level, coming in around 14%. I thought was really delicate, mm-hmm. elegant, special.
0: Right. So that was the Steenberg, the Black Swan Sauvignon Blanc. Now, the other white, as you mentioned, is a, a Chardonnay, which there isn't that much of in Constantia, but it's quite highly regarded. And this is the Baten. And first, maybe I'll just fill in here. It's labeled Baten in the U.S., B-A-Y-T-E-N. The full name is Baten for and you can see how that Afrikaans tongue twister might not have sold so great in the US market. So that was adapted kind of by their importer suggestion a few years ago. The full name, though, definitely speaks to their aspirations because the name means beyond expectation. So was this Chardonnay, was it beyond expectations?
4: So this is the first time I've had wines from this winery, actually. And anytime I try, it doesn't even have to be South African, anytime I try a Chardonnay, you just have an expectation it's going to be a certain thing, right? And mm-hmm. yeah. it's it has a bit to do with the fact that we've all been saturated with Chardonnay in our markets all over the world. Chardonnay is very popular. Therefore, there's a lot of opportunity to try it, and there's a lot of people who grow it. And it's rare that you open a Chardonnay with an open mind just because there's, again, all these backgrounds. But uh, the mentality of this wine from the winemaker's stance is to be white Burgundian. Their aspiration is to make wines like Merceau. Mm-hmm. And so – Opening it up, I tried my best not to think, oh, they're trying to be White Burgundy or they're trying to be California. I just let it speak for itself. And what was beautiful about this wine is I saw much more of a minerality to it. I saw like a meringue citrus quality. And then I also got this kind of, what what I tend to get in really high end, usually new oak used White Burgundies. you get this kind of, a little bit of reductive quality, but also like a butterscotch. And Mm. that butterscotch, I wouldn't call it oaky, buttery popcorn. It's more delicate than that. It's more kind of on the confectionery side of that. And when I went back and looked at their actual use of Oak, this wine had 20% new Oak, which was less than I expected. It had 70% second fill and 10% third fill. But one of the things that stood out to me when I also kind of dive deeper into the wine was that the, the vines are very young. The vines this wine is made from are five to 14 years old. And so for young vines like that to be producing such great quality Chardonnay already, it gives me such excitement to watch the kind of evolution of this wine as the vines get older. Mm-hmm. And I think already for a young expression of Chardonnay from an area not known for Chardonnay, I think they're right on the money.
0: Yeah, I can totally see that. As you mentioned, this property goes back to 1769. Before that, though, it was actually part of the original Simon von der Stel Constantia property. So this is one of the estates that was broken off of the original property back in the day. So again, that 340 years of wine, of vineyards at least, on on this property. And so we move from these parts of Constantia with this very deep history to the more up-and-coming part of Constantia with the final wine, which is from the winery you visited, Constantia Glen.
4: Yeah, and uh, they have an Austrian family as the owners, really, really amazing people. They're not just trying to grow grapes, they also have tourism, obviously the lockdown now and It's hard for anyone to go anywhere and do anything anywhere, but South Africa is pretty locked down. I had the good fortune to dine at their restaurant. They have this amazing kind of agriturismo-style restaurant. I don't think they have an accommodation yet, but maybe they were talking about that when I was there. The Mm. vineyards, though, planted, I think, in 2007? They're pretty young.
0: Yeah, after 2000, there was a big fire up in that part of Constantia in 2000, and several properties up there actually made a move into wine growing after that, so sometime in that decade.
4: Yeah, so Alexander Weibel and his father, they live on the property. And Alexander took some really good time with me and my colleagues who were on this trip and t- t- showed us his property, showed us the land, got a really good sense of what the area had to give. And now having that experience over a year ago and being able to come to a wine with some age of theirs, this is a 2012 Constantia Glen 5, a blend mm-hmm. of Cabernet Sauvignon, 27%, Petit Verdot, 27%, 21% Cabernet Franc, 15% Merlot and 10% Malbec. This was something that comes out of a, a pretty late ripening, cool vintage of 2012. They had a really slow ripening because of a cool summer and that allowed optimal phenolic ripeness and a, a really great concentration of flavor. And that allowed them to put this into 80% new Oak. And for me, when I taste an 80% new Oak wine that was in barrel 18 months, I have expectations of what it's going to taste like anytime it's younger than let's say 10 or 12 years, you, you expect it to, to be like a tree branch. And <laughs> what was great about this wine is I didn't find that. I found very, I have hints of, of the, the oak use on the aromatics. There was a little bit of a vanilla quality to it, but silky tannins on the palate, really expressive black currant, blackberry on the nose, lots of rosemary herbal qualities, but just so silky on the palate. And I think the cool vintage really helped for that. Such a a wine of elegance and delicacy. This is the kind of wine I want to go find another bottle and have it with a ribeye or have it with like a really amazing pork shoulder or some barbecue ribs.
0: That that sounds great. So
4: beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, right? I mean, I can't go to a bride in South Africa anytime soon, so I got to
0: take it home. Absolutely. So it seems like, and this touches on something you said before, that... This is a historical region, but obviously a lot of what's happened is this rebirth and diversity of styles now coming out of an area that's really just, a, like you said, a suburb of Cape Town.
4: Absolutely. I think they're looking to the world of wine to see where they fit in as far as kind of how to find an edge with this new history. And one of the things actually, Jim, you brought up, there's this really great kind of parallel to what's happened in Tokai. They've gotten very famous for their sweet wine production but there's a renaissance of dry wines. And I think that same parallel is happening here in Constantia where people are realizing, yes, we have this historical context and yes, we're known for the sweet stuff, but we also have this potential to grow cool climate, dry wines. They can pretty much get most things to ripeness there. And I know that they're probably doing a little bit more of the trying new varieties on the side, but it's not what you're seeing in the market yet. So Mm -hmm. who knows if they'll do some other stuff. But I think that the focus on cool climate Sauvignon Blanc Definitely, there's a lot of semi grown there, which I love. I look forward to seeing more of that. One thing that actually really excited me when I was doing more research on Steenberg was that they make Nebbiolo.
0: I was so going to mention that. very
4: interesting to me. Yeah, so I, I look forward to trying that.
0: I thought about pulling a bottle of that for this talk, but then I figured I wanted something that was a little bit more representative. When we do Constantia right. Take-Two, then we can dive into the Nebbiolo or look at, I think, Claude Constantia just planted Grenache and so forth. Wow,
4: yeah. so cool. Yeah, and so that forward-thinking motion, that's something that you wouldn't have found in the past. That's something that's brand new. There's an openness that didn't exist in the past. It's a very historical area, and I get it. People who've had these properties for so long, they're custodian. There's a custodial nature to it, but I think the new mindset now is, let's see what's potential, what we can accomplish here. So I look forward to watching the growth and the expansion.
0: you enjoyed our look at the Wines of Constantia. You can find more resources and links to the various producers we talked to at our website, wosa.us. Also on the website, check out the Wines of South Africa SOM session. If you want to learn more about South African wine, here's your chance. Just get together a group of friends on Zoom or whatever video conference platform you prefer, have each one pick out a bottle of South African wine, and we'll arrange for a sommelier to kick off your online party with an hour-long rundown of the wines. You'll find more details on our website. Finally, if you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends, or better yet, go to the platform where you found it and leave a review. That will help more people discover it and discover South African wines. Next episode, we'll look at a grape that barely had a toehold in South Africa in the 1970s, but which now makes up more than 7% of the country's vineyards. Today it makes some of the country's best wines, and as it happens, it's also the most popular grape variety here in the U.S., Let's find out why there are so many great South African Chardonnays out there. Mm-hmm.